And so you talk about morphogenetic fields, morphogenetic fields, these are just examples how you can find other examples in biology, but the morphogenetic field could in fact be not inside the, the nervous tissue of the brain, but our minds and our memory, et cetera, could be existing in the bioelectric matrix that informs the nervous system. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I had this idea that if I could learn enough Chinese to understand Chinese medicine from within the Chinese language, then I'd be much better at explaining what we do to my patients. It turns out I was wrong, completely wrong. In fact, it took me further away from talking about Chinese medicine in English because Chinese medicine, it makes a lot of sense in Chinese, but when you bring it into English, well, it's kind of like trying to read the directions on that fancy new thing you just bought but the directions are clearly in Chinglish. One of the problems with explaining Chinese medicine to Westerners is that we don't have the cultural background to understand something as simple as the reason for why that so-called healthy raw veggie smoothie that they're having for breakfast, it should be called destroy the spleen decoction. So the challenge is not to try to give our patients an abbreviated Chinese medicine 101 course, but rather tell the story of Chinese medicine by taking something from their current experience and explaining it in a way that the Western mind can grasp. And really, this is one of the beauties of Chinese medicine, that because it's based on readily grasped principles in nature, we can lean on that to help our patients understand. I found over time that trying to explain Chinese medicine using our professional and technical language didn't seem to help me to connect with my patients. What's more, it would leave me exhausted by the end of the day. Other than those rare individuals who were shopping for a new and exotic way to think about their illness, mostly my patients don't care about acupuncture or how we think. They're simply interested in feeling better and they just want to get on with their life. One of the challenges I've set for myself has been to find a way to take the story that my patients are telling me about their condition and use that to tell them the story of themselves from a slightly different point of view. A point of view that includes resources that they are overlooking or how they have been following the advice of an expert, but it's actually doing more harm than good. Sometimes it's not what people need to do, but what they need to stop doing that will bring them benefit. But it rarely helps for you to tell them that. They need to hear it for themselves. And even though patients want us to be the expert, they're more likely to make a change when they think it's their own idea. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with John Hubacher on science, bioelectricity, that weird quantum level where everyday physics unravels like a cheap sweater, and how consciousness seems to weave into the picture in some curious ways. But first, a couple of things for those of you that love to learn something new. I've got a little clinic tip for you something to watch for in your practice. You know those patients that are always giving to others? The ones that endlessly nurture others but rarely care for themselves? You know, the ones that are everyone's beck and call except for their own? For these folks, it would be helpful if they could turn the focus of their attention and care towards themselves. And you can help them do that by tonifying the kidney. From the Sa'am perspective, doing this makes people a little bit more self-involved, and that can be very helpful if they usually leave themselves out of the equation. 
The Sa'am method has this and many more ways of helping people, not just on a physical but also psycho-emotive level. And we have two live introductory classes coming up in 2002, one in New York, just north of NYC, and the other in July in Oakland, California. Also, if you like online learning, then check out our on-demand intro class. Visit the website for details. Look under the courses menu. LASA OMS is dedicated to helping you with your clinical success, not only by providing you with quality supplies at fair prices, but also by supporting resources for learning like Geological. It goes without saying that LASA has the widest selection of quality needles from brands that you know and trust, as well as any other supply that you might need for your clinic. But more than that, LASA is dedicated to helping you be a success with your acupuncture practice by supporting conferences and with their library of webinars and blog posts. LASA OMS is keen on helping practitioners with the business side of their practice as well. They recently hosted the online Love Your Practice teleconference, and this year the focus was on practice, growth, and management, which is perfect if you're looking for some ideas and methods to grow your business. You can catch the replays of these sessions as well as replays of the webinars from the Neuroscience Acupuncture Panel, Whitfield Reeves' Contrary Approaches to Treating Low Back Pain, and Chloe Weber's fantastic presentation on CBD and the gut-brain axis. All of these and more over on the LASA website. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for LASA's mailing list so you can get notices on their flash sales. They run all kinds of specials on everything acupuncture-related that you might need for your practice. LASA OMS, supporting your practice and our profession with resources and knowledge. All right, I know all you acupuncturists love weird science. Buckle up. Here we go. John Hubacher, welcome to Geological. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. I am delighted to have you here. We ran into each other at the Pacific Symposium some time ago. I am familiar with your products. I bet many listeners here are familiar with the famous Pantheon <laughs> line of electronic <laughs> devices. You're the guy. <laughs> Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation and hope it's of great value to people. Well, I hope it is too. Uh, I, I do this podcast for that reason, but what I'm really looking for is to answer some questions for myself about bioelectricity, electricity, how these things interact with the human body, electroacupuncture. I never really understood electroacupuncture. I mean, you know, we had, we had classes on it, and I know there's people that do it, and I've heard different things. I've even interviewed people here on the podcast, but I'm telling you, I was one of these kind of people like in high school, I didn't take physics, I didn't take chemistry, I was kind of an arts guy. And so there's a lot of basic science. Man, I just don't have the background. Whereas you, you're kind of a geeky uh, science guy. So I would love to know how you first started uh, coming around to this interest in human bioelectricity. And then we're going to get into you know, electroacupuncture and all this other stuff. But I mean, what what got you started with? I mean, you're not a practitioner other than being a practitioner of knowing about electricity. No, I'm not. I'm not an acupuncturist. You're not, not an acupuncturist. You're a different kind of practitioner. I do not do um, therapy. I don't have a clinic. I don't have a see patients, etc. Right, but you got devices that that people use, and you've got a background in this stuff. So tell us a bit about what 
got you going with all this? <laughs> well, if you read the history of science, it's a very nonlinear kind of a thing, as most history is. And so I can certainly claim a similar pathway. My original intro to this field, I go, by the way, I go back way back. I, I did my graduate work in the 1970s at UCLA. This was at the Neuropsychiatric Institute, and we had a laboratory, a parapsychology laboratory, and Dr. Thelma Moss was a medical uh, psychology professor at the NPI, we called it, Neuropsychiatric Institute, UCLA, prestigious institution. She did a lot of parapsychology research, and that's real research where we're looking at telepathy and psychic healing and psychokinesis, and we tried to photograph ghosts. We had a broad range of what are classically called parapsychology research topics. Of course, this was in California. <laughs> parapsychology was international in the 70s. Was it? Yeah, it was. There's quite a few very active labs. And there were labs at UC Davis, University of California Davis, at University of California Santa Barbara. Charlie Tart was in Davis. He was very prominent, always has been a profoundly excellent example of a parapsychology researcher. I mean, one of the best. UC Santa Barbara had people, Thelma, Dr. Moss, was at UC LA. This later on got purged in the late 70s and all the parapsychology folks were let go. But there was a time there when we were knocking away at stuff. And so I was very interested in this. I volunteered to be part of the lab and basically became a grad student over there. And we did a lot of extraordinary which would seem otherworldly research at the time, 1970s, in the mid-1970s, psychic phenomena, energy, acupuncture, it was unknown, it was unthought of, it was unheard of. Acupuncture had just been brought to the United States in eh, the early to mid-1970s. Right, super new. Totally new. So I saw, yeah. actually, it was at the forefront of all that stuff. It was, it was an interesting viewpoint. I can talk about that. We're lucky enough, Dr. Moss had an interest. There was a book that came out in 1968, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain by Oscar I Andrew remember Schroeder. that book. You remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Old... Well, you know, like I was saying, I, I was this, you know, when I was in high school, this is the mid 70s, early mid 70s. I wasn't the science guy. I was like the sort of arts and, you know, so I, so I remember like reading books on herbs and Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain was something that was floating around in the crowd I was hanging with. Well, it was kind of a bombshell because they talked about a lot of things. And, and if you believed the book, it appeared that their research in this field of parapsychology and paranormal phenomena was far ahead of what we had here in the United States at the time. So, my God. And, and this was, you know, uh, we were in, of course, political competition in a more confrontational way with uh, then the Soviet Union. So that was part of the dynamic and the, the politics of that. And the um, they mentioned this thing called Curlian photography in that book. Dr. Moss wrote to some people in the Soviet Union and they invited her there, primary of which was this gentleman named Victor Inyushin, who lived in Alma-Ata, which is now called Almaty, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan was part of the Soviet Union. It's not now, but it was then. And this gentleman was a physicist and one of the very early progenitors of what was called quantum biology, quantum physics and was researching the Curlian technique as well as acupuncture and the effects of red laser light on acupuncture meridians. And so he uh, invited Dr. Moss there. She flew there, spent a couple of days with him, brought back information and plans for how to build these Curlian apparatus and had talked to uh, Victor Domenko and some of the people that were sort of these seminal researchers in, in this odd field of Curlian photography. Now, Curlian photography 
was of interest because it was described by the Semyon and Valentina Curlian in the 50s and the 60s and then later researchers as perhaps being a, a, a way to measure biological fields or the energy body, for instance. It wasn't definitively or rigorously demonstrated by the Soviets, but it was alluded to. They have a method of, we later found out, of, of talking about science that was more, uh, let's say, they're not up to the standards of the West where you you do a particular type of research and you have a strong methodology and you have strong statistics and you publish it in peer-reviewed journals and it's refereed and blah, blah, blah. In the Soviet Union in those days, in many cases, they would, they would have a kind of narrative philosophy of science where they would talk, they'd do a little bit of research and then they'd, they'd really embellish it in terms of philosophy and the implications of what it might mean and what it is. And, and they would draw all these threads together. And of course, anybody who can be a theorist and take a shower and have great ideas. <laughs> and chances are, we think that they probably did that as a result of, you know, needing to be very practical and solution-oriented people. That's the way the culture was in the Soviet Union at the time, and, and, and they could probably pull the wool over the eyes of the Russian bureaucrats and get more funding if they had these beautiful ideas, some which could be grandiose. And so kind of the anthropology of science in their particular culture, this was quite normal and not invalid, just not up to the standards of rigorous data that we have here in the West. And so- So they were bringing in a larger narrative. Well, they brought in an extraordinarily large narrative. And I think that, that if you look back in history, uh, the contribution of a lot of the Soviet work, in particular, this gentleman named Viktor Nushin, uh, who had an idea called bioplasma. And his idea of bioplasma was there was a system of electrical charges that would circulate throughout the body. And then these are responsible for um, acupuncture meridian phenomena, as well as regulation and control of body processes, like a regulatory system, like the blood system or nervous system. It was actually like a kind of a system he was describing. And that the bioplasma also interacted uh, with human consciousness and was responsible for paranormal phenomena. Like if you're having, uh, if you're doing healing on somebody, psychic healing would be, re would be a, a an example of you interacting with your patient via your bioplasma system. The bioplasma of the healer would interact with the bioplasma of the patient and cause regulatory changes in the, in the bodies of the patient. Sounds a bit like Qigong healing. Precisely. Mm -hmm. So and, let me ask you this real quick. Yes. I, this, is, this, this might be a little bit of a, a divergence, but I'm just, I just want to get into this for a second. So they had the, these larger narratives. I'm just asking for opinion, your opinion here and, and from sort of an anthropological history of science sense. They had these larger narratives and it was okay to include those narratives. That was actually part of the way that they did their research. It seems to me these days we also have narratives but we don't put them on the table. Often there's a narrative, it's like people are trying to prove something, but it's like, but that piece isn't on the table so much. I think that this is open to broad discussion. I, like everybody else, I'm trying to figure out the universe and the world and-, and <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> In science, there's many, many, places where things are talked about and discussed and with the opening up of the internet even more so and there's journals and there's personal relationships and there's coffee and there's having a beer with somebody and then there's conferences and there's 
peer-reviewed publications, and then there's high-level peer-reviewed publications, and then there's low-level alternative peer-reviewed publications, all this range. And then you can publish a book, and nobody reads it, or some people do. There's all this stuff. Or you can have broadcasts like this. There's many, many avenues of discussion, and you can find almost anything out there now these days. You can go to YouTube and find the most outrageous science, and very, very good science. So there are narratives, and then there's narratives that are determined by people's ability to get funding and have an NIH grant and be a professor, and then they're worried about these kinds of, well, everybody's worried about their professional status and profession, have they offended the colleagues, and if they say something wrong, they're not going to get funding. So all of these things, all these dynamics take place in science. <laughs> so if you dig into narratives, you find that there's there's always a background of narrative that is decades ahead of the actual rigorous bench style data that is then called proof. And to prove something in science, you have to have data. It has to be published in a strong peer reviewed journal. It has to be replicated by people. And even then it might not be accepted. If it's paradigm shifting, you're going to get, you're going to get, get blowback. You're going to get a brick wall you're up against. Mm -hmm. And it takes much time and much agreement. And that is a huge variable, depending on what the zeitgeist is and what the funding zeitgeist is, and generally speaking, all these things. And so the progression of science is an amazing phenomenon. I mean, it took two or 300 years for people to understand the basics of electricity, just some of the basics of electricity. And we're in a very much, very similar thing here today where I think people are trying to understand what is this thing called biological fields, biofields, and of course, when we talk about acupuncture, acupuncture is paradigm shift in Western medicine and uh, in an extended sense, Western philosophy and the philosophy of, of life because it is, is, we really have energy fields that interact with the environment and with the mind and all this kind of stuff. And that's a whole new paradigm shift for medicine, if that's true. Meridians themselves are controversial. But it's quite normal that this takes decades for it to work into the culture, particularly the Western culture. If it takes decades or even 100 or 200 years, it's not abnormal. And, and this is really what we're up against is people who want to promote this field is, is we need a profound patience and we need to be looking at our legacy and know that, you know, we're in, a, we're in something here that it's a transition for a long period of time, 50 years or something like this. I've been at this since 1970. And so I'm looking at 50 years in this business. I can look at the progression of science data that's extraordinary. However, the, the rigorous proof and agreement is, is really not nearly so extant at this time. So you have a, a profound depth, a large and broad amount of narrative right now about biological fields and meridians and the implications of all this electricity like we're talking about. The actual proof and agreement is thinner, much thinner. So, but it's moving rapidly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I just was on a soapbox, but no, no. I mean, this is this is stuff that it goes through my mind a lot. It's like how we know what we know, how we trust what we trust. You know, I mean, what constitutes proof? If there's a religion of the modern times, I would say it's science, right? It's like the ultimate. Well, you know, did a scientist prove it, right? And is it repeatable? And is it, you know, is it? air quotes are good science. Exactly. Well, and scientists argue all the time about what, what's valid data and in, in the field of, uh, for instance, acupuncture. Yeah, well, we argue about that too. I mean, I was talking with someone the other day on the podcast 
And the discussion came around at one point to how just some basic terminology that we use in Chinese medicine, it's like we don't have a standard terminology. One person can say qi, and you know, if you got six people in a room talking about qi, you got eight different definitions. This really is precisely the situation. There's a, an article in 2018 published by um, uh, Dr. Langvin, and Dr. Langvin published this in... Um, Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine, and she was saying that the unspoken problem in, in acupuncture science right now is that, is that the simplest parameters, acupuncture points are not defined scientifically, acupuncture meridians are not defined scientifically, and the all the language we use to talk about these things, the nomenclature, the words, the scientific terminology are not standardized, and so this is a major thing that needs to be really tackled by the whole field. What is an acupuncture point and what is an acupuncture meridian? Just the most basic stuff. Can we really define those things? Now, she's head of the NIH program on alternative medicine and complementary medicine. She's head of the NIH on this, and so she's got an authoritative, and she's, she's sympathetic, but, she, and she's all, but she's, it's an authoritative viewpoint. So Western medicine is looking at this right now askance because the, the, um, the scientific rigor to define acupuncture points and meridians is currently lacking. It's, it's hard to reproduce anything if, if we're not all working with the same building blocks. This is not just endemic to acupuncture. You find this in all fields of science. You find this everywhere in science. It takes a long time for things to become standardized. In the field, for instance, of the use of lasers for therapy was originally introduced about 1963. And people started researching it more and more. They only had these very large sort of bulky apparatus to produce a very low wattage red laser, helium neon laser, very exciting development in the 60s. And they started applying it. And how were they applying it back then? What were they doing? Because acupuncture wasn't around. People weren't like doing it on acupuncture points. They were looking at biological effects of visible red lasers. But it took... It took many conferences, and I watched this take place starting in the 80s, that people would present a lot of papers and publish a lot of papers. Nobody could reproduce anybody else's results in the field of laser. They would stimulate points on the skin. They would stimulate cells in vivo or in vitro. They would look at the effects, and nobody was getting the same results. What's going on here? They had, people had a conference and said, look, folks, we have to standardize. We have to standardize the way we do research. We have to we have to report reliably such things as the power of the laser, the the size of the little circular beam, the angle at which it hit the skin, the depth of penetration of the tissue. A whole lot of basic stuff wasn't being reported as a standard. So they created a list of about a dozen standardized things to report in research. Bang. The research took off. Everybody started reproducing things, and now you've got a tremendous, you've got thousands of great publications standardized in terms of the biological effects of, of infrared laser light, red laser light, all different colors. It's, it's, it's a very strongly supported field biologically that laser influences all sorts of cellular and biological healing processes because they started to standardize the procedures for research. Now, I wrote a paper, we published it last year, about electroacupuncture. Electroacupuncture is in the similar condition. There's about 20,000 published papers on electroacupuncture. I don't think there's a handful, um, five, that reliably report the necessary and sufficient conditions 
to reproduce an experiment. That includes these basic things, just like the laser. It includes such things as the voltage. Did you measure the current? Did you really measure the frequency? Did you describe the waveform? Did you tell us the time of the stimulation? Did you measure the depth of the needle penetration? Did you have an angle of the needle penetration? Do you know the tissue it was in? Do you know the dosage? Let's call it the dosage of electricity. So without really getting into nitty gritty on this, these are, anybody can see, yeah, these sounds like logical, basic things to report. None of these are reported. You cannot open up <laughs> a single paper. Stuff published by these guys that are doctors and teams of doctors, you know, and they don't report it. It's crazy. So we published an article called a recommendation for the standardization of reporting electroacupuncture parameters. We published it in the in the journal Medical Acupuncture. It, it went in, I think it was last year, recommending. And Stricta, there's, the Stricta report on guidelines for acupuncture research has come out. It's been around a long time. It's always being modified. Uh, even that report is very thin on how to do electroacupuncture research. So it, this is, I think, an example. People have a hard time reproducing electroacupuncture research. You really can't find a lot of research showing effective protocols that are reproduced using double-blind experiments that are really considered to be high-quality experiments. So really, electroacupuncture is kind of where this red laser therapy was back in the 60s. Yes, exactly. And any kind of good scientific research before it progresses has to have the basic standards met for reporting all the parameters of an experiment so someone else can reproduce it. It's high school level. <laughs> well, that, you know, that's actually, that's good to know because if it's high school level, I've got a shot at being able to understand it. You do. You don't, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a PhD in biophysics to get this. It's, it's so, it's hilarious, but this is the, it's really funny, but I am in the field of electroacupuncture. I make machines for electroacupuncture. We do research in, and I publish in journals for electroacupuncture. I've had to deal with the FDA and our application to the FDA for our equipment is 900 pages long. We went through, we, we went through 30, over 30 electromagnetic safety tests, et cetera, et cetera, just to get these little simple devices through. It's a necessity that I, I, I work in the field of detail for how electricity affects the body. So anyway, I can say, I can, I can speak with a little bit of authority on this. And as an example, when you're doing acupuncture research, how do you know you've hit an acupuncture point? Well, nobody knows. So what people are describing research, they don't even know if they're hitting an acupuncture point because it's not defined and nobody's in agreement on that. Well, it's super subjective. It's subjective. It's very subjective. Any acupuncturist yeah. will tell you that it is. Yes. And, and that might be fine with clinic, especially if you're getting good clinical results. But it makes research really difficult because you've got no standard that you can all work from. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's part of the issues. And people are trying to resolve that. And you, there's a lot of discussion on that, which we won't go into super duper here. It's a whole other radio show. But people are saying, maybe we can have different standards for research, not your standard double blind kind of a, a high quality research paradigm. Maybe an acupuncture, that, maybe it's more holistic than that. It might be. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in school, I mean, this was a while ago, Dr. Richard Hammerschlag was, was teaching our, our research class. We were super lucky to have him. And I remember one of the things, this really stuck in my mind about how the usual double blind, you know, super objective 
kinds of research may not be that helpful in researching acupuncture. Maybe the thing to do is, you know, you go with whatever thing it is that you're doing and you do a test of that method, whatever that method is, we're just testing the method. We're not testing necessarily all the things within that method. We're testing the method against the standard of care. Does this method over here, how does it compare with the current gold standard of care? Do you get better results, less results? And, and, and you can find out some information in terms of effective, not effective, but you don't find out why. You just find out yes, no. Helpful, not helpful, which is not, you know, I mean, it, it can be useful information. There, there's a whole black box that it cannot open up. Well, and this is what the public's doing on their own because the public is putting, you know, the public is putting in cash tens of billions of dollars a year on alternative medical treatments. And they're not waiting. You know, the average Joe public doesn't sit around and read a PhD journal. On the, the average acupuncturist doesn't or, either. No, no, right, no, yeah. the, no, no. The average acupuncturist, we're going to look at research. We're going to go, oh, this research says acupuncture is effective. We're going to take it and use it as marketing material more than to develop our clinical expertise. Yeah, all this happens and it's, yeah. it's, it's always going to happen. So if, if we're talking about research, there are research, there's a research universe. <laughs> and hopefully eventually you do get truth out of this. I think that one of the things that we can cover is that acupuncture is probably a very multidimensional, multidisciplinary phenomena. And I, when we get into the, the, the discussion conflict over, is it, is there acupuncture meridians and chi energy and, and the standard TCM philosophy, or is it strictly biomedical? Is it neuromodulation? Is it just nerves? And there's a certain, there's an evolving here discussion on this, that acupuncture is, is really straight physiology, uh, known physiology, and we just have to pick it out and determine what it is as well, or there's the, the whole meridian discussion and where do the two meet? And I think this is underappreciated in the, in, in the professional field of acupuncture and it's, it's, um, it's underappreciated in the research literature, but it's evolving rapidly in the research literature and hasn't yet caught up in the professional discussions. That there's an enormous amount of um, research that's really kind of hard to dig out, but, but we would call these areas the areas of bioelectricity, areas of biophysics, mm -hmm. quantum biology, Quantum and biology. Quantum biology. Mm -hmm. What the hell is that? Quantum biology is an extraordinary thing. There is quantum physics. And quantum physics is... Um, it's mind-bending. It's mind-bending. It's, it's, not, it's not at all what you would, would expect from the way things normally, normally behave in a large world. But when you take a look at atoms, or not even atoms, electrons or photons, for instance, or where you, you, you originally started to get into the strange things, there's this classic experiment called the two-slit experiment. And the great physicist Richard Feynman said, inside the two-slit experiment is the entire mystery of quantum mechanics. And he wrote that in his, his famous three-volume book on physics for, for uh, Caltech. You can take a, like a little metal foil and put a little slit in it, a little hole, and, and shine a laser beam through it or even, even shine individual light particles, we'll call them photons for, for right now. And you can have one slit, and in back of that, in back of the slit, you can record the position that the photons, or the electrons in this case, you can do electrons or photons, 
they'll all land right in back of it, just as if you were throwing rocks or shooting bullets. If you open up a second slit right next to it, and you, you, you throw individual photons at this, the pattern in back will start to line up such that it's not just the space directly in back of the slits that record the presence of the pattern of the photons, but you get an interference pattern in between such that it was a wave that has gone through. And so this is starting to determine that photons and electrons behave both as waves and particles simultaneously. I know, it's so, it's so weird. It's like, well, is it, is it this or is it that? It, exactly. well, depends on who's looking. Well, it depends right. on who's looking. And this is the, the, the inherent mystery gets much worse than this because you say, well, if I take one photon every minute and I shoot it through and then you wait a whole long time and you put a whole lot of these little photons, a, pure, a little tiny particle of light through, if you say, oh, it's a particle of light, it, it must show up right in back of either of these two holes because it's just a particle, just like a rock. But that's not what happens. The, you still get an interference pattern. And so the question becomes, how does each of these individual particles know that there was another particle and then they create an interference pattern between them, even though there's no interference? So it starts behaving as if the individual particles are actually behaving as waves that are interfering with other particles that have yet to come through or that have already gone through. The whole thing is very unusual. This also takes place with electrons. Now, you say, well, okay, let's take a look. Let's put a detector on one of these holes and see which hole the photon goes through. We're going to try to watch it as it goes by. This is where the mystery comes in, and it's related to consciousness and observation, which to this day nobody's resolved. Most physicists don't want to talk about it. As soon as you start to look, the patterns change. They become as if there were only particles, and they only line up in back of the holes, and there's no interference pattern on the screen and back. So you have no interference taking. There's no wave-like uh, behavior of the photons that takes place. You only have particle-like behavior that takes place. If you observe it, if you take away the observation, it reverts back to a wave-like behavior. So this has stimulated a massive amount of controversy. There's books and books and books on this. We won't go into it, but it's one of the central mysteries of quantum physics. There's many other, and it's how it integrates with consciousness. Oh, well, consciousness is integrated with the behavior of elementary particles, and when you observe things, they react, and so we're all connected. That's the short version. There's 50 books on this, and I just summarized <laughs> poorly, 50 books. I mean, there's so much stuff on this. The thing to me that's so curious about it, at least in my understanding, correct me if I'm going off you know, on a tangent that doesn't make sense, but it seems that this really makes a mess of the idea that we can have objective observation that we can stand outside of a system and observe the system and go oh yeah i'm i'm this objective observer observing the system except there is no such thing as an objective observer because the fact that you're observing it means you're part of it and it changes it well this is exactly what happens on the uh, elementary particle level which is the atomic level and the question becomes how far up the scale of size does this go and they've been able to to show that this takes place almost up to the molecular level. So you can have assemblages of hundreds and hundreds of atoms, and you can still have the quantum behavior being demonstrated. But this is still a mystery. Like at what point, it's called the, it's called the von Neumann cut. At what point 
is quantum behavior then transferred into what we call classical physics behavior. Right, classic Newtonian. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's, it's you know, really, I just, like I can throw a rock and I can hit that squirrel in the tree because, you yeah. know, I do Newtonian <laughs> physics. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but this is just one of the odd things about quantum physics and there's other things. Let's talk about something else that is relevant to biology, which is called quantum tunneling. Uh-oh. I've never heard of that. <laughs> if you look at the sun, uh, the sun produces nuclear reactions because of quantum tunneling. And you have uh, helium that, that, that under great pressure from gravity, they fuse. And it's, it's a nuclear fusion process. And so that takes place through a process called quantum tunneling. The, the, uh, the repulsion of the, of the two atoms of the element keep it apart. But in terms of quantum mechanics, can be anywhere in the universe. And if you have a barrier, like an energy barrier, like, like say a piece of plastic or something, under some circumstances statistically, that elementary particle will be on the other side of the barrier. It'll just be there on the other side of the barrier. And that's called qu quantum tunneling. And this is accelerated in, in the processes of, um, of the sun where you have tremendous gravity and the quantum tunneling is, is dramatically enhanced such that you have the fusion of the nuclei and it produces the nuclear reactions. Quantum tunneling takes place in biology, and this is where quantum biology comes in. It's just starting to be discovered in a couple of nodal areas that have been proven. Olfactory perception, magnetoreception in birds for how birds travel along the magnetic lines of the earth, olfaction uh, and photosynthesis in plants. So we're talking about some very, very basic sensing elements of living beings, right? When I think olfactory, that's like one of the very first, I mean, that and kinesthetic. Yep. Is very like basic. Super basic, right? Vision well, comes way later. Hearing comes way later. <laughs> By the way, these things, these processes take place in one-celled organisms, in the most primitive life forms on Earth, you have these advanced quantum mechanical processes taking place. Tunneling takes place, as an example, uh, photosynthesis is almost 100% efficient, which is dramatic if you know anything about how things operate in the world. And I wish I had me some chloroplasts. I wouldn't have to go to the grocery store. Exactly. We go outside and just take your shirt off and get lunch. <laughs> how is it 100% efficient? It, the, the energy of the sun, the photons hit the plants and they do some chemical reactions. But using quantum tunneling, they find out the most efficient methods of creating their biochemical reactions and then they are able to do those, but it takes place using quantum tunneling where, where the electrons of the various chemicals in the plants reach out and make very, very efficient combinations. And it's, it's a quantum mechanical process. Same way in the nose, in the bird, uh, the magnetoreception, the field lines of the Earth are extraordinarily weak and sensitive and they can't possibly create a chemical reaction in the brain such that the bird would know how to move. So how can these chemical reactions take place? The, the magnetic field of the Earth is, is tripping very, very, very highly sensitive quantum reactions in the brain, and the bird is able to navigate as a result of that. But basically, this, this hypersensitivity to the, to the fields of the Earth is allowed through the quantum physics processes. Hypersensitivity. So this is, in some ways, circling back on your earlier work, the thing that first got you interested the parapsychology, 
does this come back full circle in your mind? One thing that's about acupuncture that I want to emphasize here, if I say one thing that has intelligence, I believe that the, the field of acupuncture, and this includes the field of the, the concept of meridians, which, which we're going to extend to, to include the electrical circuitry of the body. It's a, it's a profound synthesis in science that is going to be seen as a grand synthesis, I think, in the, in the near future, because it integrates parapsychology, consciousness, biology, physics, and everything in between is wrapped up in this thing. There's a whole new medicine, a whole new physics, a whole new understanding of consciousness, and a whole new understanding of medicine that is, will take all of these things and synthesize them, and we can, we can see how they're all linked together holistically. In physics, the holy grail is the, as Einstein was looking for, is a unified field theory that it would unify the sciences of gravitation, quantum physics, Newtonian physics, uh, strong and weak force in the nuclear atom. One equation that'll describe everything. And I think this is exactly what's possible through an understanding of the electrical forces in the human body. And I'll, I'll, I'll get around to this in a minute. Yes, parapsychology is, is, I think, is, is strongly implicated, uh, and the literature is, is showing this, with uh, quantum physics processes. And an analogy of this is the phenomena of entanglement. Entanglement is this very strange thing, absolutely proven. But you can take elementary particles like photons or electrons, and when they're produced in an entangled form, when they sort of originate in the same way, they can be any distance apart. They can be hundreds of miles apart. They can be a whole universe apart. And as you measure one, it'll automatically, you'll not automatically know what the, what the state of the other is. They're connected in an entangled sense. This almost sounds like yin and yang. Yin and yang. And over any distance, faster than light. And so this, this obviates and eliminates the faster than light relativity barrier that, that is so, which is true, which is so prominent, but there's something else happening in the field of quantum mechanics. The things are connected through some means and nobody really knows how, but we can get into that. And one of those, one of the ideas is it's connected through sort of the next dimension up the quantum vacuum. Oh boy. But you know what? When you, when you, I can see us going down that rabbit hole, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Not today. We are, we are, we are connected and entanglement is, is a model. It's not proven, but it's a potential model for how telepathy occurs or how we're all connected or how we're all one, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Which is something that tr spiritual traditions have spoken to since we've had spiritual traditions to talk about. And we were talking about what's the, what's the relationship between quantum mechanics demonstrated on the electron or the photon level, the very elementary particle level, and the whole organism, what we call the macroscopic level. And the connection we think, or my research thinks is, is the etheric body or the meridian system or the biofield system or the bioelectric system in the human body is that interconnection point that will interface the elementary particle level of quantum mechanics and quantum physics to the macroscopic level of normal Newtonian physics or normal human physiology. It's the electrical system that stands between as the bridge or as the interface or as the transformer between these two fundamental systems. And inside that is how consciousness pops in and everything else is holistic. I feel super optimistic hearing you talk about how there could be, uh, how we're like moving toward this kind of grand unification 
between things exemplified by, say, acupuncture on one side and, you know, some very nuts and bolts, you know, research science from a very conventional medicine point of view and, you know, physics. There's this way that it can come together and we'll have like a whole new gestalt of understanding health, well-being, you know, life itself, consciousness, you know, all this stuff. Precisely. Precisely. And... It goes beyond that. No, <laughs> it goes beyond that. Okay, it does. But um, like in parapsychology, the big question—I'm just going to chuck this out there. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let, let's get it. And, and 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 then we're going to come back to something very basic, like how does electricity affect the body? And I want to talk about that because that's where we're getting into some real specific, rigorous, hard data that demonstrates the practical uh, aspects of these sorts of things. But the questions such as reincarnation are very open and quite provable inside this system I'm talking about. And I think that in the next 20, 30 years, we'll actually have in the laboratory demonstrations of human survival after physical death through both radio contact with people and photograph, being able to photograph reproducibly people that are, what we call them ghosts, but we will, we will be able to have a means of photographing and talking through radio people that are really on the other side. And all of this is through an understanding of the subtle electronic connections that consciousness is and how it interfaces with the physical world through the biological fields and energy bodies of, of all of us. So I think that that takes us into proof of this thing. And you talk about a macroscopic, we talk about a grand unification. This is part of the grand unification is, is we'll have scientific proof of, of immortality essentially, which weaves all of this into the spiritual traditions. Uh, and I think that's where we have to be going eventually. Wow. I'm, speechless at the moment and i'm usually not speechless well, welcome to life <laughs> yeah well i mean there's that it is fascinating isn't it and it's wonderful it's you know it's just so wonderfully wonderfully filled with mystery i really do want to come back to in a moment some very nuts and bolts stuff but before we do you've been talking about biological fields you've been talking about electromagnetic fields there's a thing that i got clued into some years ago rupert sheldrake's work uh, and thoughts of uh, morphogenic fields. And, and I'd, I'd like to get your take on that before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, like, you know, pumping electricity through the body via acupuncture points. I know that, that Sheldrake, he's great. He's on, the, he's on YouTube a lot if, you want to, if people want to research him. He's marvelous. The morphogenetic fields, I think he's, uh, I think he's going after some, some hard data tests on that. I'm not up on his specific testing, but let me, let me, sh let me bring in something. If the readers want to go into deeper info on some real hardcore specifics, they could do a, a YouTube search for Mike Levin, M-I-K-E-L-E-V-I-N, and then the word bioelectricity. And I was just listening to, in preparation for this talk, uh, 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 an hour lecture on him. His talk was called bioelectric computation outside the nervous system. You get a marvelous one hour talk on this. And this is just last year he gave this. Uh, Mike Levin is a, um, he works at Harvard in their bioelectricity laboratory. And he's, he's attempting to study uh, regeneration by manipulating bioelectric fields in tadpole larvae and planaria. So this is, this is not unlike what uh, Robert Becker was doing back in the day with salamanders. This is right out of 
Harold Saxon Burr's work in the 30s and the 40s. Harold Saxon Burr still, and this is how marvelous science is, you go back to the 30s and the 40s, Harold Saxon Burr, his work is seminal and, 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 has, and has almost the seeds of what we're talking about here. Is as an example, his electrodynamic theory of life, which he published with Northrop, there was one simple marvelous experiment. He'd take a frog's egg, which is a single egg, a single cell. And the question is, how do these things differentiate? How does the morphology, how does the shape develop? How do you get different anatomical parts out of a single cell? That's a great question. It's a great question. Yeah. And, and, oh, it's the genes. Well, it's not the gene. The genes can, can reproduce proteins, but they can't determine shape. They can't determine anatomy. They can't determine the sequence of events of things being formed, et cetera. And all of regeneration, you cannot explain it through genomic theory. This is, you talk to a developmental biologist, the genes take you only so far. What Burr saw was voltage gradients. He measured, and this is when they were just developing the electronics for measuring sensitive, elect, you know, sensitive voltage fields. But he would measure on the frog egg voltage gradients along here, along the spine, along this one axis of the frog would be a high gradient. And then over here to the left would be another one. Over here to the right is another one. And these particular gradients, this one became the spine, this became the eye, this became the leg. Particular voltage gradients then generated into particular anatomical parts. But you're saying there's voltage gradients outside the form of this cell. There's, there's voltage gradients in the field around this thing. The voltage gradients determine the anatomical development, the differentiation of the tissue, the anatomy, the shape, everything. And, they're outside, the and they're outside the... Precisely. Where'd the, they come from? Nobody knows. Uh, they just were there. And there's nothing in the frog that developed the voltage gradient. There was no structure there. There was no nothing that would be... Where did the voltage gradient come from? And this is a very key question. Not only the observation of that the voltage gradients determine the anatomy and therefore the physiology, but where did the voltage gradient originate from? And this is an absolute fundamental question. And they're still knocking on this today. And Mike Levin goes in this in great detail. And they've taken it to the nth degree, but it's, it all stems from his work. I just, I copy this down from his, his talk. He says, like the brain, Somatic tissue from bioelectric networks that make decisions about anatomy. Uh, we can target this system uh, for control of large-scale pattern editing, healing, and regeneration. You talked about morphogenetic field. He was showing an example of a um, caterpillar <laughs> before it becomes a butterfly. You can train a caterpillar to do stuff, like go through a little maze, and you can actually learn something. You can actually teach a caterpillar to do something. When it becomes a butterfly, the butterfly has the same memory. And what's happened in between there is, is the caterpillar has completely reformed and deformed and changed and <laughs> everything has changed. Where was the memory? It was inside something other than the nervous tissue or the physical anatomy. And this goes on and on like this. You can have a, for instance, um, the antler of a deer can be in a particular shape, like it branches. And then you can cut it off and it regrows. It'll regrow up like a centimeter a day. It will regrow in exactly the same pattern that it was. Where does that come from? Where's the memory for the antler growth? He was showing examples of planaria 
where you can take and cut the head off of a polaria and using electric fields cause it to grow two heads. And what, what, what's a planaria? It's a flatworm. It's a small mm. flatworm. Okay. It lives in water. Yep. And cut his head off. Cut his head off, right? It doesn't die. No, they're they planaria are marvelous from the standpoint of regenerating. You can actually take a planaria, and he was describing this how you can uh, they have done it up to two hundred and seventy-five times. You can cut them up into two hundred and seventy-five sections. Each of those sections will regrow the entire planaria. Now Amazing. Regenerative capacity of the planaria is extraordinary. If the regeneration was genomically determined, determined only by the genes, when you, for instance, uh, take this two-headed planaria, which has been manipulated electrically, you, know, you can cause it to grow a second head by using, by changing the electric fields on the planaria. Let's say you cut, you take, you have the planaria with two heads, you cut both heads off again, it'll regrow two heads. It's not genetically determined. It's determined apparently by a memory that's present in the electric field, Mike was saying. And so you talk about morphogenetic fields. Morphogenetic fields, these are just examples how you can find other examples in biology, but the morphogenetic field could in fact be not inside the, the nervous tissue of the brain, but our minds and our memory, et cetera, could be existing in the bioelectric matrix that informs the nervous system. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they, they inform each other. Precisely. But it sounds That's like the very... field might be primary. Well, when you, when you dig into the literature, the, the, the people in doing theory in this work are saying that, and, and Harold Saxon Burr said this, he said, the biological field informs the physical anatomy and the physical anatomy informs the biological field and they work together to inform one another. So it's really a, it's really a uh, co-created reciprocal relationship. Yes, precisely. So it's not necessarily all one or the other, but it's both. And one can be dominant at certain times. At times the, the field can be dominant, but the question arises, where does the field come from? Uh, is there a morphogenetic field? Now, part of my research and research we're currently doing, we have a very interesting and uh, impactful type of research. We're trying to replicate what's called the phantom leaf effect. And the phantom leaf effect, and this is published, it was published in 2015 in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. I had a subject and we were able to, with this particular subject who apparently had, he's like a leaf whisperer, but he was a, when I was working with him, he was, we were able to take leaves and amputate them in half and using an electric field, get a photograph of the entire leaf, even though half had been amputated and removed physically. I could show these pictures, but I know this is an audio recording only. The anatomical precision of the phantom leaf is precise. You can see the cellular level, cellular level of definition is essentially 100% identical to the original physical leaf. But this phantom region appears to be, and we, we observe when we said in our paper that it, it, it's independent of the physical leaf. It shows up the same anatomy of the physical leaf. Uh, it appears to be conducting the electricity because the electricity is causing the picture. And it's not a random emanation like heat being given off by a body. It's obviously a demonstration of the leaf anatomy, almost as if it's existing prior to the leaf or completely independently of the leaf. Did we photograph the morphogenetic field? 
is this the field that Mike Levin is manipulating when he manipulates the flatworms and these other types of things? And, and is this where Mike is looking for, for instance, he's saying, you know what, it's um, the, to manipulate organisms bioelectrically is to be able to have control over all their physiological, I won't say all their physiological functions because we haven't demonstrated, but it's, it looks to be like fundamentally all the physiological functions are manipulable through manipulating the bioelectric fields. A lot of researchers, most researchers are trying to assemble molecules and manipulate the genes and create patterns. And it's like taking a computer and assembling the hardware on the computer when really if you want to do something, you got to download the software. So Mike Levin and the, bi the bioelectric researchers are working on the software level. And the software level is where the electric fields are. And the electric fields are the control mechanisms for physiology. And we don't know where those are coming from. Well. Or do we? <laughs> the unanswered questions on, in biology are what is consciousness and what is life? Those are the two biggies. I thought, wait a minute, I thought that was uh, the big questions of uh, spirituality and uh, religion. It also is. <laughs> <laughs> Biology tends to ignore it, but it's unanswerable right now. People are getting into it more and more, and there's a lot of conferences on what is consciousness, and so this is really, this is, we're in the golden age of this inquiry, thank God. But the theorist is saying, you know what, it comes from the, the quantum vacuum, it comes from the next level up, so to speak. And, and that's where the mind is. The mind percolates down, interacts with the electric system of the body, and therefore the electric system of the body then interfaces with the physical system of the body. And we have this, this is the model we're looking at. So we're talking about this grand synthesis and all of this as I'm trying to describe with Mike Levin's work. On a very practical level, he's demonstrating that the elect to, to manipulate the, the bioelectric system of the body he is postulating and demonstrating in actual rigorous experiments that are published in great detail. There is, in fact, a system in the body. The electrical charges that move around aren't just this random little things generated by local cells. There's a what we call a long-range system. My hand is, is in communication with my elbow and my brain and my foot and my, my liver. I mean, it, the whole thing is integrated. And it works together as a system, a holistic system, to do everything we call our physiological functions. And when we look at electrical things in the body, it's not just a local phenomena. It's, it's a whole system of the body. And so this is not yet defined. We know that we have, there's a nervous system and a blood system and an integumentary system and a pulmonary system and blah, blah, blah. We're, in, we're almost at the a level of being able to say, we have an electrical system. It's a system. A bioelectrical Yes, and it's a regulatory system. And it's not and, generated from within because our brain's doing all this electrical activity. It's, it's both generated from within and, and generated, generated from, from somewhere else, which is probably the, where quantum mechanics comes in. Mm -hmm. And these two things are in communication with each other. Yes, Our absolutely. internal electrical system and this field, this bio field, are in communication with each other. Yes, absolutely. Which and when one you has think, the steering wheel? They both have the steering wheel. Well... The mind has the ultimate steering wheel. Mm, tell me more about that. Well, <laughs> I mean, mind mind is a is a slippery topic. In biofeedback, you can demonstrate that the mind can control the function of a single cell anywhere, 
And with discipline and practice, the mind does better and better things. So ultimately, the, ultimately, probably the mind is in control. And if not the mind, then the, the above the mind, which would be the spiritual level, the soul level, or something like that. I mean, even the mind in spiritual philosophy or spiritual modalities, the mind is actually not, it's the, we have a soul and we, we have, you know, beyond that, we have a spirit. So all that is conjecture at this point, and, and I'm not going to get into that, but, but the mind level or the soul level is the ultimate arbiter of physical plane physiology and it's probably the level where all the patterns exist for what is life and what is consciousness and they percolate on down i was talking with uh, ed neal recently he, he goes deep into the uh Neijing, and he talks about how there's the formed in the unformed this is a very chinese medicine idea as well it's a formed and unformed and in the formed is patterned on the unformed it's the unformed it's like 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 a river runs in a riverbed so the riverbed kind of gives rise to the river in a sense and and there's this idea of coherence there's this idea of in chinese uh, they they say li where there's a patterning in things and because there's this patterning i'm going to use the word energetic just i hate that word but there's a patterning that doesn't have form. It's more like a field. And then the form shows up because of what that patterning is. And it sounds like this is exactly what you're describing here. It's exactly what we're describing. Mm -hmm. And it's the mystery of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And how can you have mm -hmm. information on the, on the consciousness level that then works down into the physical plane? Yeah. And it's a complete mystery. But I think that we're, we're, we're creating actually credible models for how that occurs. And so it's, I think that eventually this is, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, in the, hopefully in the next hundred years, figure this out. And that's a short time in science. It is a short time uh, in science. And in, and the, in human history, it's like the blink uh, of an eye. The blink of an eye. Yeah. But the information software is on somehow, ultimately on the mental level or, or the unconscious or the unformed level, works its way down into the bioelectric system, which then translates it into uh, physical control. And, you know, what I just want to say is that, that what, everything I'm talking about, there's extensive modeling about what we call integrative biophysics. Integrative biophysics is attempting to take all these things and turn it into, into real, hardcore, rigorous science. So there's many, many, many researchers and there's hundreds of people that are kind of obscure, but you can, you can dig them out. Like you mentioned Robert Becker and you mentioned... Um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, et cetera. I, I can name many more. I've talked about uh, Mike Levin. There's so many more. These are just examples. I just want to emphasize that what we're talking about here is not speculation, nor from philosophical texts like the Neijing, but it's from from uh, modern modern science, modern science, modern science. And the biological field research, like for instance, the phantom leaf effect, hopefully will be demonstrating this even more clearly. I think this implicates to acupuncture, and I think that acupuncture is, in this controversy, what is a meridian, and you can see how it's a very complex problem. So people shouldn't be discouraged. But the, if they also want to refer to the biophysics literature, which I think is, is not done. When I listen to Mike Levin's lecture, I'm thinking, you know what, he's describing acupuncture. We put needles in the body. When we do electroacupuncture, we're not just doing neuromodulation. We're not just... I mean, one of the main models of electroacupuncture and one of the valid models and one of the true things 
it, it does stimulate nerves and the peripheral nerves stimulate the central nervous system and the central nervous system regulates organs. And so this is absolutely a model. It's called neuromodulation and it's, it's totally valid, but it's the Newtonian model. And there's additional layers on top of that that are the bioelectric model. And the, we were also manipulating weak bioelectric patterns in the body and they start to do everything that Mike Levin is talking about. And is, is this where the, again, I, I don't know much about electroacupuncture, even though I'm an acupuncturist. And, and I hear that, you know, you can use certain frequencies and certain wavelength, you know, wave patterns. And yes, you can get these, these changes because you're working with the nervous system. There's also something I hear about microcurrent, which is this much weaker field or much weaker stimulation. Uh, can you speak a little bit to what these two are and how they're different and, and how they might be interacting, uh, given, given the, the model that we've just been talking about? Electroacupuncture with the stronger form, which is called milliampere current, is much better researched than the, um, the form known as microcurrent. Uh, but there are, there are different effects. The body has, has what we call physiological windows in the body. There are certain waveforms and certain cells respond to certain waveforms. Uh, there are certain, and cells and tissues will respond also to the amount of power in an electrical current and not others. Like if it's too strong, it won't respond to it. If it's too weak, it won't respond to it. There's a window. Yeah, in which there's it will a Goldilocks respond. effect here. Goldilocks effect. Yeah. And so this, people are trying to work these things out and they're finding these things out. And then there's also frequency windows. So, you know, at two Hertz, you'll get a particular endorphin release at, at 100 Hertz. You get another one release. If you combine the two every three seconds, you'll get three or four endorphins that are released. And Jinshin Zheng's work points that out. So there are certain frequency effects that take place. So the idea behind microcurrent is that it's one of the windows is the power or the amount of current or the amount of force inside electricity will determine the physiological response. And it's very, very true. So microcurrent attempts to harness the weaker forms of electricity to cause physiological response. And it's in the early phases of research, frankly, there's a lot of stuff out there I read that's not good and there's some that's good. So generally speaking, there is a difference with microcurrent. It's probably very valid. And it's good for many things, and it's not good for some other things. And you just really just have to dig into it and find out about that. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like there's some very specific effects that you can get on various tissues. Uh, you know, it has to do with the frequency, it has to do with the amperage, and it has to do with, you know, with a whole lot. There, there's very specific things. You can't just like throw, oh, I'm going to throw some electricity on this, that's going to help. There's a, what kind of electricity are you throwing on it and how fast is it or slow is it or what's the waveform and which tissue are we targeting? This is very true. Yeah. This is very true. So just like, oh, back pain, yeah, just throw some electro on it, that'll help. Well, maybe if you're, if you're stimulating the right things, it might help. Well, and this goes back to, you know, what we earlier talked about is that, that researchers really need to characterize the fundamental basic parameters of a research and, and so we can start to to tease these out and really know what's what's affecting what and why. And it can be done. It just, it can be absolutely, without a doubt, it can be done. You know, I, I started off this conversation with some very basic, you know, clinical thoughts in mind about like, you know, 
what frequencies do what and and like like your machines for example you've designed acupuncture machines you know stimulation machines and and wanting to get into some of your thinking behind that in terms of, of, of what would these treat and how would they treat them and instead we've gone off on this whole other direction that has been utterly delightful and I really thank you for that conversation what I'd love to do is have you back for another conversation where maybe we can talk some nuts and bolts stuff as well. Absolutely. Love to. That would be fantastic. Yeah, do that. Wonderful. So, Sean, any other things that you'd like to say to our listeners before we wind this piece down for the day? <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Great, Michael. Beautiful. Have a wonderful weekend. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Geological. If you've listened this far in, clearly you're a hashtag Geological nerd. So for you diehards, I have a small ask that will take three minutes of your time. I've had a lot of feedback on postcards, in my email, and in conversations in person. And what I'm hearing is that y'all appreciate Geological because you feel more connected to our Chinese medicine community and to the medicine itself. This makes me really curious because there's all these different ways that we have of being connected today. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, various chat groups, text your friends, along with the more traditional methods of books, you know, and some really fine journals. I mean, our human spheres of interconnection have never been as rich and varied as they are right now. So it raises the question in my mind, how is it that geological is somehow different from the multitude of other methods that we have to be connected. I'd really love to hear from you on this. Please tell me your thoughts on the back of a postcard or by email, or you could even leave a comment over on the Geological Facebook page. I'm really curious to know how you experience Geological as being somehow different. Please tell me about the connection that it creates for you. All right, friends, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me and tune in again next week for something deliciously geological. <laughs>